Let's pray. Let's begin. Uh, if you are, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark 14. And as you're there, I'll get to it towards uh, the towards the back half of the sermon. Um, this sermon this morning will feel more like a testimony at the very beginning. So please pardon me as I seem, it'll probably seem like I'm talking about first person myself a lot. I don't typically like to do this, but I hope it's helpful. And then we'll get into Mark 14. So allow me to pray. Lord, I thank you for your life that you give, you impart to us. And it's a full life, Lord. It's new life all the way down to our bones, to our ancestry, all the way down to like our patterns and how we cope and how we deal and how we attach, all that. You remake all of it, Lord. And I know for some of us, we are Christians. We call ourselves Christians. We go to church and we want to become more like you, but there's so many parts of ourselves that you have not even began to reach. So I pray you break every chain, Lord, <clears throat> that you would come in and every relational pattern that we have had set into our very bones by our caregivers and trauma of growing up and all this stuff. And it's just the way that we relate now. Would you begin to break and remake us? In Christ's strong name, amen. 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 So today we begin a new series that is inside our annual theme of authentic community. It's called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. Now, this is adopted from the Emotionally Healthy Spiritual books and resources, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality books and resources. Um, this series is really a continuation of a journey that we began five years ago in a series that we call, that we went through called Emo Church. How many of you remember this if you were here? Yeah, like f nine of you, awesome. <laughs> Literally, I, if you don't, if you're listening, if you can't even see, there's probably f 50 hands, maybe, out of uh, 1,200 people. So, like, that's how, I'll get into it later. Anyway. <clears throat> um, now, this is the same topic that we're talking about on emotional health. And the premise, the premise of that series, Emo Church, and this series, though it has, this one will have a relational emphasis, is this. Here's the, here's the premise. Here's the thesis. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. I'm going to read that again because I feel like maybe some of you guys try to tune me out. <laughs> Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And when we started the Emo Church series five years ago, I said I wasn't teaching that series as an expert, but as a fellow traveler wanting to grow in this area. And I can't put into words the road Ash and I, my wife Ashley and I, have been on since that series five years ago that we began at the beginning of 2014. In many ways, it feels like I've found myself through this journey of emotional health over the last five years. A journey that I'm still on, by the way. I went through two of the darkest valleys of my life while on this journey. One of them with Ashley and her recovery that I've talked about, that we've talked about. Um, and the other one, which was right on the heels of that, was when the staff and the elders had a massive conflict that came about partly due to my emotional immaturity. And deeper levels of my emotional immaturity were being uncovered while we were going through that. I say that to say we didn't choose this series lightly. If you opt in, 
If you give yourself to exploring emotional health as it pertains to your discipleship to Jesus, it will change you. And it might be the beginning of your undoing. I say that in the most terrifying and best way possible. This series will be a little different than Emo Church series. Today, I'll give an intro teaching to Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, a review for some of you. But starting next week, we'll be building out six skills in relating well. And they are these. Emotionally healthy relationship skills that we'll start building out starting next week. Stop mind reading and clarify expectation. No one does that here. Understand your family of origin. Oh my gosh, that's going to hurt. Explore beneath the surface of your life. Listen incarnationally. Climb the ladder of integrity and fight cleanly. Now, I can't tell you how important it is to be in a community group during this series because it will be really fun for you. <laughs> I started following Jesus when I was around 17 years old, and I loved the church I grew up in in Bakersfield when I came to faith. I was discipled by multiple people who poured into my life, some who I still stay in contact with that still speak into my life today. I look back fondly on the years I spent at my old church growing up, when we finally moved to Carpinteria at, when I was 28 years old, something like 11 years later. And as I look back, and all the people that poured into me when I was growing up in the faith, no one, no one really taught me how to handle my emotions. And here's why this is really important. God made us to be whole people. And here's what it means to be a whole person. You're social, you're intellectual, you're spiritual, you're physical, and you're emotional. And as I look back, I feel like there was a, a plan for discipleship for all of these areas except for one. For example, when I started following Jesus, I was taught socially. I was discipled socially, meaning I was told to be in fellowship, to mean to be in a small group, live in Christian community, live out the context of that in a local church, a family of believers. I remember I started going to a, a house church or a community group right away when I became a follower of Jesus, and it was like the most life-giving thing. I was taught to be in fellowship socially. I was, told, I was taught how to be accountable to other people. Like an inner circle of friends that holds me accountable, that knows about my life, that knows about my sin struggles, and knows about my pride stuff. I was taught about the one another's on how we're, how we're supposed to love one another and bear one another's burdens and not judge one another and regard one another more than yourself. I was discipled intellectually. I was taught theology. I was taught who God was and his attributes. I was taught doctrine, the doctrine of creation and sin and salvation. I was even taught a lot about the end times, which I don't know why, but whatever. That's what happened in my church. I was taught apologetics. I was taught how to defend the faith, how Christianity makes intellectual sense. I was discipled spiritually. I was taught how to pray. I was taught how to be by myself in prayer and pray out loud in small groups and to hear God together with other people. I was taught Lectio Divina, how to meditate and pray through the scriptures. I was taught how to have a devotional life, how to spend time journaling, have a quiet time to read the Bible devotionally. I was even discipled physically. I know it doesn't look like it right now, but I was discipled physically. <laughs> I was taught what to do with my body. I was taught how to keep my physical body in holiness, what I did with alcohol and drugs. I was taught modesty, how we are to have modest appearances as followers of Jesus. It wasn't until a lot later that I was taught like I was not allowed to wear certain shoes as a preacher. I didn't learn that until like a couple weeks ago, but other than that. Anyway, so... I was taught how to care for my body, like as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the, 
the one thing I was really, I wasn't really taught was um, I wasn't discipled in my emotions. When it came to being discipled emotionally, I was told things like this. You have to choose fact over feeling. You have to deny your emotions. Tell your feelings to get behind me, Satan. They, your feelings are unreliable and they're not to be trusted. You have to believe no matter how you feel. And if you feel too much, you are like a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. I was taught this verse in Jeremiah 7 verse 9 where it says that the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? So never follow your heart, ever. I was taught, I was basically taught directly or indirectly that emotions were not to be a huge part of the faith. Emotions are not fact, they're feeling. Don't base your faith on feelings because feelings change. Now let me tell you a little secret. I rebelled. I did go with my feelings. I'm a very emotional person. Ask my wife, someone who feels deeply on like a gut level. And I went with all my, I went with a lot of my emotions. I trusted my feelings. I trusted my gut. I went with my intuitions and I spoke my truth. It led me, I led from this place for a very long time. And like a lot of people in our culture who do this, who are led by their intuition, I was somewhat successful. I moved to San Francisco, started a church where churches typically don't do that well. People said that I led with vulnerability and authenticity, which are huge values to me. But what people close to me, only the people close to me really knew was that I was actually more like an exposed nerve. I was all emotions all the time. It was narcissism because it was all about how I feel or didn't feel. It was all about me and my emotions. And it was raw emotion. That's why I explain it like, I try to explain it like an exposed nerve. It wasn't the emotion under the emotion or even an understanding of where the, the emotion was coming from or the pattern that I was living out of. It was raw initial emotion all the time. And what I didn't learn until this journey was that I was not really in touch with my emotions at all. I didn't understand what was going on under the surface of raw emotion of like anger or withdrawal or melancholy or excitement. I was just feeling those things and then what I would do is I would feel them and then I would use these raw emotions of mine to write sermons and to do counseling and mentor and lead new initiatives at our church. And for those of you that are millennials, you th I think you get this. Because you grew up hearing from people like me who were literally raised on Nirvana. You know that Halsey song, you know, raised on Biggie and Nirvana. Even though she wasn't raised on Nirvana, she's like 19. <laughs> she's like raised on Baby Shark or whatever. She's not raised on Nirvana. But anyway, so that's the song. So I, I was literally raised on Nirvana. I, you, were mentored, a lot of you guys were mentored by people in your youth group that came from my generation who, who rebelled against not feeling your emotions. So for most of you that fill this room, emotions are everything to you. You were taught to go with your feelings. You were taught to look inward and trust that you'll find your true self there and your authentic path there. You were taught, you were raised where your feelings were your truth. 
So facts didn't matter as much because what you feel is true to you. But we both, what, what the problem was, we both grew up with not being discipled emotionally. I wasn't. I was told to deny your feelings. You weren't. You're told just to like follow every single one of them. When followers of Jesus aren't discipled emotionally, we either think emotions are bad. So when we start to feel emotional, we shut them off and we go with the mind. What does the Bible say? What am I supposed to believe very rigidly? And the result is we're afraid to feel. We're afraid to have any emotion because we're afraid of where it might lead us. Or emotions are everything, which I think tends to be more of our church. So this is the, you grew up speaking your truth. You do you. Feelings are your GPS. Feelings are, your gut is like where, you, where it leads you. The result is you don't know why you feel. You don't know why it's there. And the journey, the one I had to take, and the one that I want to invite you into this morning, is a journey to understanding your emotions, to, to being discipled in the way of Jesus with your emotions, and to start to find your true new self in Christ. Because the thing that I learned through this journey is that the first raw emotion you feel is often, not always, but often your false self. And your false self needs to be understood so it could be denied. Yep. If, if I keep telling you to deny yourself, I don't think that is helpful that, that much unless you know yourself. So until you know yourself, it's hard to deny yourself. Until you know your false self, which is what you're sp really supposed to deny, it's really hard to pick up your true self. When Jesus says, if, if you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. He, he, he is as interested in you finding yourself than he is in losing yourself. That whole thing is not about losing yourself. It's actually about finding yourself. And he's telling you to deny a false self, a shadow self, a wrong self, a self that grew up protecting and masking so that you can live into your true self. The, the true self that could know God. This is why it's important and, uh, uh, to understand your emotions because sometimes your emotions reveal a false self and then underneath that is what needs to be denied, handed over to Christ and that your new self might, in Christ might emerge. And this is not selfish. It's actually quite the opposite. Awareness of yourself and your relationship with God are intricately related. At the core of authentic spirituality is the invitation to shed your old self in order to live in our new self, Ephesians 4. 4, 22 and 24, if you're taking notes. Augustine wrote this in Confessions. How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And then he prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Eckhart, a Dominican writer from the 13th century, wrote, No one can know God who does not first know himself. St. Teresa of Avila wrote in The Way of Perfection, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. John Calvin in 1530 wrote in his opening of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. 
I guess what I'm trying to say is no matter what stream or tradition you come from, this is true. You must know yourself to know God. And the reason why that is is because you can be fooling yourself, tricking yourself by religiosity and not even know it. We can live most of our lives, even die without knowing who we are. Like who we really are under the surface of our platitudes and our masks and our religiosity and our raw emotions. I had an old friend of mine reach out to me this last week asking for advice before he begins a new very important venture. I asked him, what would he like to know? How can I help him? What kind of advice can I give him? He said, I think I, I need to know myself before I start this venture. And I would like to know your advice on how to go about that. And I said, that is very wise indeed. See, when you don't know yourselves truly, we unconsciously live our lives from a false self. Or we live our life from someone else's expectation of us. This does violence to ourself and our relationship with God and ultimately to others we're in community with. So let me give you an example of this from my own life in real time, right now, real time. There have been, over the last um, few months, several people in our church that have left our church. And this is nothing new. Um, our survey, I talked about this at Annual Vision and Prayer, about five to 600 people a year leave our church and five to 600 people a year move into our church every single year. So people leaving our church is nothing new to me. People walk up to me a lot on a Sunday and say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I've been here for three years and I just love it here and I, it's my last Sunday I'm leaving because I'm moving or something. But there's, there's something recently over the last few months that is, that, that is stinging when people leave, like hurting when people leave. And... And I, I'm not saying this to make, you, to make you feel guilty or to make you stay. I can't make you stay. I can't make anyone stay or leave. Okay, I can make you leave, but I can't make you stay. <laughs> but this is really, this is stinging. And so this is what I want to do. Like raw emotion, real time. This is, this is like my mental space the last few months is I want to leave. I want to leave you. I want to leave this church. I'm like, you know what? Why do people well, don't stay here? People don't, don't stay here long term. People don't stay here. If they do stay here long term, they won't stay in this church long term because they'll be here for five, six, seven years. I'm like, you know what? This other church, that's it. let us leave. Why stay if people leave? And so that's like raw emotion. Or so I want to leave people physically. I'm like, I, let's just leave. Ash, let's just move somewhere where people never leave. Or I don't know where that is, but whatever. <laughs> Bakersfield. Um, let's go back there. Um, <sighs> Or, I, or I, want to, I want to leave emotionally. I just want to cut people off emotionally. Like, I don't care if you leave or you stay. I don't really care. I'm like emotionally detached from you. Okay, so where's this? So that's, those are raw emotions where I, I, could, I could follow those raw emotions. I can just stand up here once and they say, you know, God's calling us somewhere, somewhere else. It's become really hard on our family and our emotional toll to live here and do ministry here. So we're moving. That could, that could be an option. Um, I could be a really cold, detached pastor that's like, I'm, I'm the preacher here, I talk here, but don't talk to me, I talk to you through a microphone, keep my distance, that sort of thing. That could happen. So, but, I ha but that's the raw motion, so I have to go a few layers deeper, like deeper, 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 deeper. And so then what happens is like, where's this coming from? And so then you, eventually what you have to do is you have to get to family of origin stuff. You have to dig down to how, how was I raised? 
what, what was it like when I was a child? Like it has to go there. And this is not psycho, this is not psychotherapy in the sense of, of um, oh my gosh, this is like pop psychology. This is not it at all. This is like God has created us, if you're reading the book, um, A Relational Soul, which I hope everyone has read that, this book that we recommend at the very beginning of the year. God has wired us relationally. So how you learn to relate is, is what was brought into you by your caregivers and, and, and your, your family of origin stuff. It just, it's wired, hardwired into us when we, were, when we were children. So as I look back, um, my family was very broken emotionally. Um, there was so much fighting going on between my parents that I've, uh, I blocked a lot of it out. Um, my sisters have to remind me of the stuff that happened when I was a kid because I honestly do not remember. Um, and as soon as I could, at, at, as soon as I got to the age where I could leave my family, uh, physically I did, I moved out. Um, as soon as I had the opportunity to emotionally leave my family, I did when I was in high school, I, friends and then fell in love with Ashley in high school and then we started dating and I was emotionally detached from my family. So all of this comes from this idea of, from my family of, you can't leave me. I'm going to leave you first. I'm going to leave you before you leave me. I'm going to leave and detach myself physically and emotionally from you so you can't hurt me. I've done that really well with my family, which is not healthy at all, by the way, and I'm still working towards that, where there's this detachment so you don't hurt me, but you also can't make me happy, and you also can't bring me joy, but you can't hurt me either. So what's triggering when people are leaving our church is this thing. It's not on you. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything. This is on me. This is the things that I have to deal with as I like, and I have to, like false self says leave. That has to be denied, but it has to be understood first. Have to go a level deeper. What was going on there? What was, what was happening when I was a kid that was so, so traumatic that I had to shut myself off emotionally and not relate to people and then keep my distance from people so you could never hurt me? What, what is that? And my wife and I made a, has like almost basically made a covenant with this city. We bought a home. Like we're here. We put down real roots here. So we're not going anywhere. And so I have to deal with this. I have to deal with this family of origin way of relating. And unless I shed it, unless I confess it and shed it and get down deep and like what is going on under the surface, what is really going on and what can Christ invite me into where I'm denying the old self and picking up the new self? It damages my relationship with God. Because then I start detaching from God. God, I don't want you to hurt me. So I'm going to detach from you. I'll keep you at a religious distance. And we can be cool as long as you keep my job going. But that's it. And it damages how I love and relate to my wife and my daughter and the staff and the leaders of this church and my neighbors. See, how we relate is, is connected to all of it. But I have to know myself and know my false self and where that's coming from first. So let me do what pastors do and turn this around. What's keeping you from not committing to a place, to a faith, to a, to a faith community, to a person? What's keeping you, what's causing all of your serial dating? What's causing you to emotionally detach from your spouse? What's causing you to get lost hours on end on your cell phone? What's causing you to be defeated day in and day out by pornography? What's going on deep down? See, religiosity 
and, and, and we can dress us up as a church and just like make a commitment, like we're not going to do that anymore or whatever, but there's something going on under the surface. And you will remain emotionally immature and spiritually immature until you go down la layers deep. Enough, enough about me. Let's just talk about Jesus now. Mark 14. Jesus, at the end of his life, Turns, and I know that we just went through Holy Week a couple of weeks ago. And so reading this feels like, whoa, whoa, I thought we were past this part in the church calendar. Let's go back there one last time. Mark 14, in Jesus' life, he's praying in this garden called Gethsemane. And it says this, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, his friend, his community. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Quote, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, his friends, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour, the hour meant the cross, what he was about to go into, the rejection, the torture, the crucifixion, and some sort of carrying the sin of the world upon him to where he literally went to hell, that thing. He prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he says, Abba, Father. Uh, Abba is Daddy. In Aramaic, Daddy, everything is possible for you. You can do anything. Take this cup from me. The cup that I'm about to drink, the cross, the carrying the weight and the sin of the entire world. Take, take it from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This is one of the most human pictures we have of Jesus recorded in the Bible. It's also one of the most emotional pictures of Jesus we have recorded as well. And neither of these are an accident. To be human is to be emotional. To be human is to feel deeply. Some of us hate to feel. We pretend, we deny, we distort. We tell a joke, we break the tension. We don't like to feel. Some of us love to feel. We love it. We love bleeding on everyone we're around all the time. <laughs> In the garden, Jesus was not afraid to feel, nor was he projecting his feelings on his friends. He just asks his friends to be with him and to pray. Can, I'm about to go into the, the most agonizing thing I've ever gone through. Could you just come with me? And could you stand right here and just pray for me? And then he goes away and prays. Jesus was also not afraid of how his feelings would reveal his struggle with the Father. See, Jesus is fully God and fully human. We focus so much on Jesus being divine that we forget that he was fully human. And in his humanity, he struggled with the will of God. For many people in the church, the repression of feelings and emotions has been elevated to the status of spiritual or even virtuous. Denying your anger, 
ignoring your pain, skipping over depression, running from loneliness, and avoiding confusing doubts has become a way of working out your spiritual life. But what if anger and sadness and depression and even lust were emotions that where, where God actually wants to meet with you? What if your emotions were like a gateway for you to meet with God at that moment? In the book, The Cry of the Soul, the writers say, ignoring our emotions is turning a back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into a reality or ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. This is where I believe emotional health starts. By letting God into our emotions. By letting our emotions reveal our struggles. By letting our emotions reveal our, even our false selves. Letting our emotions reveal our history. Our pain. Letting our emotions reveal our family of origin stuff that we have yet to deal with after 40 years. And inviting God into that pain. Inviting him to meet us right there. See, Jesus was not afraid of his feelings, but neither, but Jesus didn't, what he also didn't do, he didn't just feel his feelings. See, a lot of us have feelings, but what we really do, the only thing we do with our feelings is we feel our feelings. We just feel them. And we feel them deep down and we, and we tell other people how we feel and we're always feeling and feeling and feeling. But Jesus didn't, didn't just feel his feelings. He gave his feelings. He gave his feelings to God in prayer. In our struggle with our emotions, in our realization of what our emotions reveal, we must give our feelings to God. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. These two words together mean grief has completely enveloped him, that grief has surrounded him, that, he's, that it has completely saturated his consciousness. And he not only told his feelings to his friends, he told them to his father. He gave his feelings to God. But not only did he give his feelings to God, he gives his desires to God. What does he desire? Ultimately, what's, in, what's his desire? His desire is to not go to the cross. What's underneath that? I mean, there was all kinds of fear underneath that. He's not afraid to give his desires to God. Whatever is underneath there, he's submitting to the Father. He's surrendering it to God. Let this cup pass from me. Here are my desires. Here's kind of what I really would like to do right now. This is tricky. Because if we know the story, these desires to not go to the cross were not the desire of the Father. Nor were they the purpose of Jesus being sent Jesus was sent to be our sacrifice, to die our death, to take our place. We deserve the cross, not him. We send, in our, we send emotionally and spiritually and intellectually and spiritually and socially. We send. But Jesus gives God his desires, even though his desires right here are, quote, wrong. Because he would go to the cross and that's why he was sent. But he still, even though his desires are not theologically correct, he gives them to God. I don't want to go to the cross. Is there another way that we could redeem humanity other than the cross? Now, if you're there, you're probably like, Jesus, no. Like, we've read Romans. I think this is the way. <laughs> I, don't even allow, I don't even know if you're allowed to feel that way. 
Like you should just deny your feelings. Fact. The fact is you're the one to be crucified for the sins of the I mean, if we were there trying to counsel him away from these feelings, we'd be like, whoa, I don't know if you could, I don't know, you've taken it too far. But what if we're free to, to start doing this before God? Even if our emotions are, are, are quote, wrong. Think about the implications that has on lust. A lot of us don't even know how to give our lust to God. We just feel our lust. And then it just consumes us. It takes over us. Our, our, our emotions, even around success or entitlement. We, imagine giving those to God. Inviting God into those moments where I'm, I'm feeling so full of lust right now, God. What's underneath that? What's underneath that? And how can I deny a false self? But what, but this is where all our emotions must come to rest. This is where, this is the end of all our emotions. This is exactly where Jesus ended. He gave his trust. Not only did he give his feelings and he gave his desires to God, but he ultimately gave his trust to God. He said at the end of that prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will. Not ultimately what I want in my desires, Lord, what you want. See, the thing is that we can trust God with our emotions, even, I mean, all of our emotions. We could surrender our, our humanity to God, like all, all parts of us. We can say, not my will, your will. But there has to be this journey where we're, when we realize that we can meet God at the place of our emotions. So the question, I think the question that we're left with is what garden are you in? There are two gardens that frame our emotional lives. One happens at the very beginning of the Bible and one we read about here in Mark. The one at the beginning of the Bible is called the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a place of distrust, ultimately, Shame, hiding, manipulation, blame that led to death and disorder. And then we have this picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. There was agony and pain and fear and all of it was given to God in trust. And what we know from the Garden of Gethsemane is that, that the, what happened there and those emotions brought life. Brought us life where we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of whether we feel. I think the fallacy is that we take our immediate emotion and we think that is us. That's, the, that's, that's true about me. That's what I am. That's who I am. But every single time we do that, we actually just build a layer of of a, of a false identity and so much so to where our culture is understanding that where, the, where, where our identities now are just being classified as fluid. They just move around. And I'm just a collection of all these different things of whatever I feel like at any given moment, whether it be sexually, whether it be where I want to live or what I want to do. I'm just a, flu I'm fluid. Things that are fluid aren't solid. Things that are fluid have no foundation. And that might be how you feel right now after chasing your emotions and following them all and doing them all and you just feel empty. I want to invite you to allow 
the, the living Christ to meet you there. And to start asking what's underneath that and what's underneath that and what's the false self that we need to be crucifying and denying. And what is the new self that's made in the image of God that needs to be exposed and brought to light and lived into? This journey toward emotional health will not just be you coming and listening to sermons over the next six weeks. It will take some work on God's part and work on your part. I will not, I will not lie to you. We're going to call you forward for ministry time now. And I, 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 want, I want there to be real, true healing taking place. But it's the beginning of something. The beginning of something. A beginning of a journey. Would you stand with me as we pray? If you would, if you can just hold your hands out. Hold your hands out in a, like a posture of surrender like this. Just be still for just a, a moment. With your eyes closed and your, your palms open to God, I want to read this scripture over you. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light became night all around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. Come, Holy Spirit. For those of us that feel like when we are in our darkest place, there's no way you can find us there. We're so lost. We're so upside down. We don't even know how to feel anymore. There's no way that you can find us. Even the darkness is not darkness to you. It's light. You are light, God. Would you dispel darkness now? Come, Holy Spirit. 